Well, it's good to be here at the Masters College. It's always fun for me to be around uh, the college. Always fun to, I mean, it's not like I came back to the college. I live uh, two miles away and work across the street at Grace Baptist Church. But it's always good to be here, good to be in chapel, and good to be reminded of so many um, fun memories, fun times had as a student uh, here at the college. Uh, just coming in today, uh, uh, seeing the field out there always reminds me of the the great times we used to have as a sophomore. Actually, it was LABC back then. It was before uh, my senior year was the Master's College. But before that, as a sophomore, we would uh, go up on top of the hill behind Hotchkiss Hall about, oh, maybe midnight, one in the morning. And uh, having just borrowed some golf balls from the pond over at Little V, we would uh, go up in the dead of night with about 10 flashlights, tee up golf balls, and drive them off the hill onto the playing field. Fun times. And it was fun to get up in the morning and come out and see where they landed, you know, to see some on the field and some in the parking lot. And uh, Anyway, it's fun to, be, fun to be in this room. We never hit any houses, never hit any cars going by, never any of that stuff. Fun to be in this room, too, and remember all the basketball games that we lost uh, here in this place. One of probably the most embarrassing moments of my life, um, probably, yeah, probably the most embarrassing moment of my life took place. Um, right, wherever the free throw line is, right about here, huh? And I was uh, uh, transferred, I transferred from Fresno State to LABC from a Division I program. Highly touted recruit, they were so happy to have me here at, the, at Los Angeles Baptist College. Had to sit out that first semester, finally got to play my first game in December against Cal State Northridge. And uh, came into the game and uh, got fouled immediately and the hush fell over the auditorium and I shot an air ball from the free throw line. Right there. No lie. Didn't hit anything. Didn't hit the net, didn't hit the rim, just the ground. And uh, incredibly embarrassing. Who's in 202? Yes, it's a great room. We should talk afterwards. There's a legacy to that room. And uh, I met my wife there, who's sitting right in front of you. My wife there, I met her in the, in the lounge. I was an RD here at the college, and she was an incoming freshman. Uh, we were just friends for a while. Yeah. Uh, uh, me and a good friend. Uh, me and a good friend, uh, Paul Hill who works up at Island Lake Campground as a graduate of the Masters College. Paul Hill and I had been given the responsibility to, uh, to check in the freshmen, and I thought they said check out. And uh, <laughs> Kebra came through the door as a, as a young freshman, and we developed a friendship in the months that followed. Uh, it didn't take too long. We were, uh, started dating in January, got engaged in May, and were married the following December. So, But Hotchkiss Hall, that was not too bad. Hotchkiss Hall has a lot of good memories as well. Anyway, thanks for having me this morning. It's good to be with you. Why don't you open your Bibles if you've got them to Colossians chapter 3. I want to talk to you this morning about a paradox. Not two ducks and not two doctors, but a paradox. Some would say a paradox is a contradiction of terms. Some would define a paradox as confusing truth. Something or someone understood yet misunderstood. Sound like a date, dating relationship, maybe? 
Webster says it this way. A paradox is a statement seemingly absurd yet true in fact. A statement at variance with common sense. A paradox is a statement seemingly absurd yet true in fact. A statement at variance with common sense. And I'm sure we could talk about a lot of different paradoxes that you've experienced or heard in your life. Um, but I think we even find some paradoxes in the Word of God. If you think back to Matthew chapter 7, what does it say there? It says that if we want to gain life, we have to what? Lose it. There's the whole idea of the Trinity and how all that works. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The different functions, the different roles that they play. Sometimes just the idea of the Trinity can be paradoxical. There's election in Ephesians 1. There's free will in Romans 10. We see God as a just God. A, jo a God who brings judgment on His people. We see that time and time again with the people of Israel. And yet we also see God being a very merciful God as well. There's the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Happy are the sad, blessed, He said, are the persecuted, and the gentle shall inherit the earth. Sometimes these truths can be very difficult to grapple with. Sometimes very confusing to understand. Hard to figure out. Challenging to consider. There is another paradox though found here in the pages of Scripture, right here in Colossians chapter 3, that I find very interesting, many times confusing, and yet extremely, extremely critical to the Christian life. Critical because of the practical, everyday implication I believe this paradox has in your life and mine. And the paradox I'm referring to has to do with the believer, you and I, and your relationship, my relationship, the believer's relationship to the unbelieving world. The believer's relationship to the world. World meaning unbelieving, the unregenerate world, the unsaved world. Its people, its values, its morals, its standards, its activities, its way of thinking. Where do we fit in? Or do we? Where do you fit in in the midst of the unregenerate world? How are we to respond? How are we to function? How are we to live as believers in the midst of an unbelieving world that touches our lives every hour of the day through some form or fashion? How are we to survive in the tension? Well, what does God's Word say? John 8, Jesus says, You are of this world and I am not of this world. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. Galatians 1, 4, Paul talks about being delivered from this present evil world. And in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. But, on the other hand, Jesus Himself, in the prayer recorded for us in John chapter 17, speaking to God about His disciples, what does He say? He says, God, Father, do not take them, what? Out of the world. Keep them in it. Keep them there. There's the Great Commission. The last words that Jesus spoke to His disciples there on the mount saying, go into what? Go into all the world, is what He told them. Titus 2.12, the Apostle Paul again says, live soberly and godly in this present world. And then the Apostle Paul again, in first, uh, the Apostle John in, in 1 John chapter 4 says, live like Christ in the world. So how is the paradox resolved? How do we handle the tension? Where do we find the balance? How can someone say to you that you must somehow reach the world from beyond the world when Christ Himself said, go into the world? And John says, live like Christ in the world. Do you ever struggle with this? 
Do you ever struggle with the balance? Do you ever struggle trying to figure out how exactly you're to posture yourself in relation to the world as a believer? And I hope that you don't sit here this morning and say, you know, Kelly, that sounds good, but I'm here at the Master's College. I've got Bible classes all day long. I'm in a Christian environment. I'm so isolated. You know, I'm kind of just here to learn and to study and to prepare for the world. I hope that's not the case for you this morning. I hope you haven't fooled yourself into believing that somehow it's okay if you in some way isolate yourself from the unbelieving, unregenerate world in the cozy confines of Placerita Canyon. I hope that's not the case for you. And I don't care whether it's through um, a part-time job. I don't care whether it's maybe um, a, a class at COC, just one maybe. Uh, maybe it's through a church, a local church, and the ministries of that church. Maybe, there, maybe it's something else. But I hope that you are pursuing meaningful and significant opportunities to touch and to be involved with and have association with, in some form or another, the unbelieving world. Do you ever struggle with the balance, though? Do you ever find yourself trying to locate where it is you should be? Trying to live powerfully. Trying to live purposefully. Trying to live with real perspective in the midst of a fallen world. Well, if you're interested, let's look this morning just briefly at trying our best to kind of work our way through the paradox. To work our way through the tension. Look with me, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. The Apostle says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So the question is, is it possible? Is it really possible for you and I to live powerfully a supernatural life, a godly life in the midst of an ungodly world? Paul says right here in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians that it's possible. And he gives for us in these four verses, he gives us three components, three things that, that must be in place in your life and in mine if we are going to successfully try and work our way through the paradox. Three things that we must do if we're seriously going to attempt genuine supernatural living in a fallen world. First, first of all, he says that we must remember something very important. Secondly, he says that we must respond to what we've remembered. And then thirdly, we have to realize that our response to what we've remembered is made possible by four very encouraging realities. Let's look first of all, though, at what it is the Apostle wants us to remember. Verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised up with Christ. Almost sounds like maybe it's a question, and yet in the, in the Greek, grammatically, this word if uh, literally indicates an accomplished fact. Okay? In, in essence, the, the, the phrase would be better said, since you have been raised up with Christ. It's not a question. It's not in doubt. Paul is saying this is an accomplished fact. Since you, as a believer as one who has entered into relationship with Christ, since you have been raised up with Him. It says right here that as believers, we have been raised up with the person of Christ. That phrase, raised up, sune gerthete, means this. Listen to the definition. To be raised up together, to be co-resurrected. To be co-resurrected with Christ. And let's understand something very important. If we were raised up with Christ, 
then, then the reality is such that not only were we raised up with Christ, but we also died with Christ. Colossians 2.20, Colossians 2.12, uh, Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified. There's verse after verse, passage after passage, which reminds us of the fact that we have, we have died with Christ, we were crucified with Christ, and then other passages. Look at Romans 6, if you would, real quick. Romans 6, verses uh, 4 to 11, bring to light what has happened. What Paul reminds us here of in Colossians 3, what Paul also reminds us of here in, in Romans chapter 6, that after we died with Christ, we were sune gerthete, we were raised up, co-resurrected with Him. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with Him, there's death, through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, for if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, Colossians 2, 12 and 13, other verses that remind us of the fact that we have not only died with Christ, but we have been co-resurrected with Him. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, As a Christian, I am now in Christ and completely and thoroughly identified with Him in all respects. Therefore, he says, whatever happened to Christ has happened to me. When He died, I died. When He arose, I arose. And now, theoretically and positionally, I am seated with Him while practically... I strive earnestly to live out my position in the everyday of life. End quote. You see, this, people, is the beginning, I believe. The beginning to supernatural living. You and I have to remember. And we have to be reminding ourselves constantly of who we are and where we come from and what has taken place in our life as those who have come to know Christ. Paul says here in Colossians, remember. Remember that you were raised up with Christ. And that should make a difference. I hope it makes a difference. Think about it just for a minute, would you? Just personally, in, real light, in, in light of your own life, in light of maybe where you are this morning as you contemplate uh, different relationships, different situations or circumstances that you may find yourself in, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's family. Think about it. The power as a resurrected, as a co-resurrected believer. The very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is the very same power that rests and resides in the core of your soul. Paul says, remember, you've been raised up with Christ, and let's not forget that with that comes tremendous capacity. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has that reality made a difference in your life? Has it really? Does it continue to make a difference? in your life, a distinctive difference? Has it made a difference in the way you live? Here at the Master's College, um, with your family, in those difficult areas of your life, is it making a difference on an ongoing basis? Does the reality of your co-resurrection experience really prove to be distinctive on a date, in the dorms, with those at your part-time job? Do you sense, can you identify the power of the resurrection and the power of your resurrection partner at work on an ongoing basis in your life? 
So first of all, Paul says, we have to remember. Remember something vitally important, that we were, we were co-resurrected with the person of Christ. Secondly, he says, and you see it right there at the, in the second part of verse 1, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. He says that we are to keep seeking the things above. The verb here to seek is a very strong word. It doesn't look incredibly strong, maybe to the, to the eye, but when you begin to look at that word and what it really means and how it's really translated in the original language, um, and you get a clear understanding of its meaning, you see it's vitally, vitally important, I think, to what Paul is trying to communicate to you and I here in Colossians 3. And Paul says we are to seek the things above. Uh, he doesn't mean that we are to casually consider. He doesn't mean that we are to periodically ponder. What Paul is saying here is that we are to covet earnestly. Get this, okay? Don't miss this. We are to covet earnestly the things above. We are to strive after with a strong desire to aggressively go after. Here's the key. To pursue as if your very life depended on it. Paul says, keep seeking the things above. And when he tells you that, he's not saying go about it in some lackluster way. No, we are to pursue these things above as if our very lives depended on it. Let me try and explain. I was uh, 20, 21 years old, 20 years old, uh, having just come to know the Lord maybe a few years before and enjoying working with junior high kids at Grace Community Church on staff there with Russell Moore who served here as the executive VP of Student Life for a number of years. And uh, Russell always encouraged us to spend time with our kids. And one day I took him up on that and uh, accepted an invitation from about three or four seventh grade guys to go water skiing with their parents. And we went up the road here to uh, Pyramid Lake, up on the five there. And we were skiing there one afternoon, had a great time, skied all day, got tired, did the inner tubes, did the skiing, played on the beach, played football, the whole thing. And we were out late in the afternoon, early evening for one last ride in the boat. And it was a couple of the guys and myself, their dad and, and the mother of this, uh, of this one boy who had invited me, uh, good people. He was a, is, I think, still an elder at Grace Community Church, a great family. And we were having a great time and we were kind of cruising back toward the dock. And the guys decided they wanted to jump out and swim to shore. And I said, great, I'm, I'm with you. Let's go. We'll do it. We'll have some fun. So the dad stops the boat, and the guys were probably maybe 250 yards away from shore. And we jump out and start to swim for it, having a great time laughing, racing. And uh, we're probably about three-quarters of the way to the shore. And for some eerie reason, I'm not quite sure why then, still aren't today, but for some reason, I felt like something was going on behind me. So I stopped. They kept swimming. I'm dead tired. I can hardly breathe that we've gone so fast and had so much fun playing in the water. And I stop and I look behind me. And what had happened was that the mother had decided that she was going to make the swim as well. But she didn't realize how far it was. I don't think she realized how tired she was. And I look back, treading water, and there she is. And all I can see are her hands and the top of her head about 150 yards back the other direction. I was scared to death. I was also tired and about to drown myself, I thought, and yet here's this woman and she's dying right in front of my eyes. And so I swam. I swam as hard as I could and as fast as I could and got to about a point where I was maybe 15, 20 feet from her and she was gone. She had gone underneath and I couldn't find where she was and all of a sudden I saw some bubbles and she'd pop up and I'd start to go after her and she'd go down and she was dying. And all of a sudden, and her head was turned around the other way, well, all of a sudden I got about 10 feet from her and she came up and she saw me. 
she saw me there about 10 feet from her. And let me tell you, this, this frail, small, tired, drowning woman who was scared to death all of a sudden saw me, her eyes bulged, the veins in her neck came out, and she had hope. And I mean to tell you, I was 10 feet away from the lady. And like that, her legs are wrapped around my chest. <laughs> no kidding. Her legs are wrapped around my chest. Her elbows are driving into my neck. Her, her fingernails have stuck into my skull. And, and she's going to kill me. <laughs> now, we're, now we're both going to drown together. And now I'm panicked. My eyes are bulging. The, the, the veins in my neck are popping. And I'm thinking, lady, what are you doing? She's panicked. No kidding. I come to my senses. I'm underwater. I see, you know, her legs are wrapped around my, my chest. And all I could do, all I could think to do was to grab her off of me. This is an elder's wife, a lady I respected greatly. And I just slapped her right in the face. I said, knock it off. I yelled at her. Hit her right in the face. And she kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? told her to relax, please. I thought we were going to die. I said, get on my back. She got on my back and we kind of swam to shore and it, it worked out fine. The point of the story is that I was a hero. The point of the story, the point of the story is what happened at that moment when that lady saw me 10 feet away dying. She looked at me and folks, she sought me. She came after me. She came after me as if her very life depended on it. She wasn't going to be denied. When Paul says to you, when Paul says to me, Colossians chapter 3, keep seeking the things above, that's the kind of pursuit he's talking about. That's the way he wants you to pursue the things above, as if your very life depended on it. It's in the present tense, which may not mean anything to you, but we know in the original language that indicates a continual, habitual, ongoing action. He says that we are to pursue the things above. What are the things above? What does he mean when he says, keep pursuing? As if your very life depended on it, keep pursuing the things above. Let's make sure we understand what he doesn't mean, okay? Just to clarify. What he doesn't mean is that we're to walk around with our heads in the clouds contemplating heaven. In, in, in the sense that that's all we would be thinking about. Just thinking about heaven. Just thinking about being in heaven. Just thinking about those kinds of things. Heads in the clouds removed from reality. It's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that we're to remove ourselves from our surroundings. He doesn't mean that we're to disassociate ourselves from the world. 1 Corinthians 5 says he wants us to associate ourselves with the world. So what does he mean? What are these things above? Anybody got any ideas? Go ahead. Shout it out. Any thoughts come to mind? Paul says, seek the things above. What are the things above? Love to hear what you have to say. Real loud. Any ideas? Righteousness, whatever is true. What's that? Good. Other thoughts? What he's commanded? Good. Any others? I heard one over here. I'm sorry. Somebody help me out. Good. Thanks. Those are real good, and I think real accurate. I was intrigued by the same question. 
and uh, looked at what some different men had said, found a guy named William Hendrickson in his commentary, helps us identify what exactly I believe these things are. Hendrickson said, these things that are above are the spiritual values, which I think somebody said, or made reference to something that was a spiritual value, spiritual attitudes, spiritual attributes, and spiritual traits which are embedded in the heart and person of the one who sits at the right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritual values, the spiritual attitudes, the spiritual attributes and spiritual traits which are embedded in Christ. In essence, Paul is describing, I believe, the personal pursuit of Christ-likeness. And I know you've heard that before. I know you've heard that hundreds and hundreds of times that you are to pursue Christ-likeness, that that should be a goal in your life, that that's something worth striving for. And I'm here simply to say, again, that I believe that to be true. And when Paul says, seek as if your life depended on it, the things above, I believe he's encouraging us to pursue Christ-likeness. Things found right here in our passage. It's great to see that Paul gives us here in Colossians 3 some things that we're not to pursue, as if our lives depended on it. Look at verses uh, 5 to 9. You want to see what we're not to pursue? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Those are things that we're not to pursue. And then, very helpfully, he gives us an idea of what some of these things above might be, what they might look like. Look at verses 12 to 14. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Paul says these are the things above. These are the things that we must covet and pursue. He in no way wants us to remove ourselves from the world. He wants us to give ourselves to those in the world and live in the midst of the world with thinking, with values, with attitudes and actions which would be consistent with the one we've been co-resurrected with. Christ-likeness. Be honest with yourself this morning, please. Just a few more minutes here and we'll close. Let me ask you just a couple of questions. With this in mind, okay, with Paul's exhortation to remember that you've been co-resurrected, um, with next the exhortation to respond to that by seeking the things above, what are you seeking in your life? In, in this fashion, in this way, as if your very life depended on it. What do you seek? Is there anything in your life that you seek with that kind of energy and with that kind of commitment and with that kind of heart? What is it, or who is it, maybe, that you're going after as if life depended on it? What are you seeking? Is it the person of Christ? Really? Is it Him? Is it your co-resurrection partner and His attributes implemented and lived out in your life? I guess the proof of that would be your life itself, right? The proof of that pursuit would be your life and the way your life looks lived out in the everyday of life. How's your life look this morning? How's it look? 
Are you seeking Him as if life depended on it? Or maybe do you seek success or ambition? And I'm not just talking corporate or financial. Even spiritual success or ambition. Where does that sit in the ladder of pursuit in your own life? Maybe it's a relationship. Huh? Maybe a relationship with that special guy or gal. Maybe that relationship has climbed the ladder to the point where the thing that you really pursue in life is really a person. Maybe that's the case for you. Maybe it's just a good time. Gosh, we're at college. College is a good time. Dorm life is fun. Going to games, eating great food in the calf. Those kinds of things. I mean, we're just here to have a good time sometimes, and there's nothing wrong with a good time. But what is it? What is it that sits at the forefront of your heart and your mind? What do you pursue as if life depended on it? Maybe it's even an addiction. If this group is anywhere near the statistical average, there would be those of you in the room uh, this morning struggling with drug addiction, some struggling with uh, sexual immorality, some struggling with other hidden sins and things that grip your life that you wish weren't there. Struggle with and battle with, but the fact is you pursue. Just a word of encouragement. Think about it, would you, this morning? What are you pursuing? And let me just close with this. He gives us another command. He gives, a, he gives us two commands. To seek the things above. And then in verse 2, a very, very interesting uh, phrase. Set your mind, he says. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So not only are we to seek the things above, Paul says we are to think the things above. As I read this, I can't help but think that what he's really describing, okay, and get this, I think what he's really describing here for you and for me is our perspective. What is your perspective? What is the grid, if I can use that word, through which you view life and approach life and approach the people in your life? Set your mind on the things above. What is your perspective? Paul says as believers, our perspective is to be heavenly. Our perspective is to be eternal and spiritual. Statistics tell us that over 10,000, 10,000 thoughts a day run through your mind. 10,000 thoughts a day go through your mind and mind. What would a picture of your most recent 10,000 reveal to us this morning about your perspective on life and the way you approach life and the way you approach people. Mine needs help at times. Mine needs help a lot of times. I was reminded of that just the other day when I was, uh, and I don't know how you respond to this, I didn't think I need to grow in my maturity and in my ability to respond in situations like this, but I was uh, by myself the other day and a guy down on the city street and the guy came up and asked for money panhandler. I saw him working the crowds. You've seen him in Westwood. You've seen him in Santa Barbara. You've seen him all over the place. Uh, I think what didn't help my perspective was that I had read an article about a week prior to the encounter with this guy about a man in, in, in Westwood who had been arrested and they had proven the fact that he had made $33,000 last year as a panhandler. This is running through my mind and this guy, I see him coming at me and it just bugs me. It bugs me because I know he's not legit. I know his car didn't break down. I know his wife and kids aren't around the corner like I knew he would say to me. And in my frustration and in my, I think, poor perspective, the guy comes and asks for a quarter and I let him have it. I said, why don't you get a job? Kind of sarcastic. And as the words came out of my mouth, 
it's one of those situations where you wish you could just bring them right back because you realize what a fool you've been and how insensitive you've been and how short-sighted you've been because the fact is maybe it was a scam but I didn't know this guy I didn't know where he was coming from I didn't know his needs really and there I was popping off acting like I knew it all and evidencing I think a poor perspective on life and people I'm encouraged so often by my own wife um, she's younger than me hasn't been through as much life as I've been through and yet so often when we encounter struggles when we encounter times that are difficult whether between the two of us or uh, with family or with finances or with people hurting us or whatever it might be so many times I hear Kebra say to me oh I can't wait for heaven I can't wait for heaven and in my twisted perspective sometimes I think you know I can I want you know first it was I wanted to get married right Lord, don't come back till I get married. So then we got married, and then you say, Lord, don't come back till we have a kid. Now we've got a little boy, seven months old, and it's great. And I want to see him play for the Lakers. I want to see, I want to see him grow up, and I want to see him date, and I want to see him have friends, and I want to see him do all that stuff. And my perspective sometimes can be so incredibly narrow, and it can lack real insight. And she's an encouragement to me as she sees that stuff, and I think with a real healthy perspective, longs for a time and a place where we'll be with God. I would challenge you this morning, just in closing, how's your perspective? How do you view life? How do you view people and opportunities? Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed. Literally, be changed in form by the refocusing of your mind, by the renewing of your perspective. Ephesians 4, 23 says, lay aside the old self and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ask yourself this morning, just as we close, what is it that most influences your perspective? Here at the Master's College, whatever it is that you do, what is the one thing that most influences your perspective on life? Is it your job? Is it your friends? Is it entertainment? Is it a relationship? Is it a hobby? Is it your parents? Or again, is it Christ, your co-resurrection partner? Your interaction with that, with that truth and the way that truth impacts the unbelieving world that you come in contact with. I hope that your perspective is clear. I hope that you're seeking the things above with an attitude and with a pursuit that is aggressive as if your very life depended on it. Let's pray. God, thanks for the words we find here in Colossians chapter 3. The challenge that it gives to us this morning to really contemplate and consider how it is that we view life Thank you for the chance that you give us to interact with and be involved with those that don't know you. And God, as we pursue that and as we pursue trying to find the balance, God, I pray that we would keep you in mind, that we would seek earnestly, covet earnestly, pursue as if life depended on it, the things above, meaning you and your attitudes and your attributes. And God, that as we move in that direction, our perspective would be eternal. Our perspective would be heavenly. And we would be able to remove ourselves in a sense from those things here that would bind us, that we would keep our perspective clear and fresh. Thank you for these students. I thank you for the, the commitment that they have to you, the love they have for you, and the course that you have them on here at the college. Be with them today. In your name we pray. Amen.